Our New Testament reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he judged me faithfully and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Storytelling God, send your spirit to open our minds and our hearts to hear your word. Challenge us, change us, and move us to follow Christ, who speaks to us as a friend, whose words we can value and trust. Amen. So today is the second installment of a four-part sermon series that uh, I called Reboot. And if you've ever had to reboot your laptop or your handheld or your phone, uh, you know what that means. It means that there's uh, some electronic gremlins in the wiring and in the circuitry, and you need to clear that out. In my mind, the same thing happens to us. Stuff gets in our heads and our hearts, and we need to reboot from time to time. And there's lots of ways to do that. One of those ways, obviously, is, is spending some time in Scripture and looking at maybe mentors and people in our life that have helped us. So if you'll remember, the first part of this series was called Reconciling Relationships. That was back on September 1st. And we looked at Paul's letter to Philemon and his, um, and his church there. The letter was read out loud to Paul's church that he had established. And it was an attempt to reconcile a relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And I think it's important to understand that that reconciliation process was to take place in public. It wasn't something private. It was a, uh, Paul's wishes that it be a public event within the church. I think that's important for us to remember. Kind of the same as today. Uh, today is part two, reimagining regret, and it's using a letter from Paul to 2 Timothy. Again, Paul knowing well that this letter will be uh, read amongst his believers. Um, part three, reframing prayer, will be in a couple weeks on October 9th, and then we'll end up October on the 30th with Rethink Happiness. So I always like to give credit where credit is due. I got this idea from an article that I read by a Methodist minister named Brian Erickson, and it was about renewing and restarting a ministry. And I did feel it was appropriate for this time of year as we you know, put away those lazy days of summer and we're knee deep in craziness of fall schedule. And I really don't have to explain that to the parents and grandparents in the room. Um, you know all about that already. 
And as a staff member here at Mount Pleasant Presbyterian, I can tell you we feel the stress and the strain of all the fall activities that are going on as well, especially when we look back over the last couple of years, we've had such limited contact uh, due to COVID. So we're accelerating back into that exciting uh, fall scheduling. Uh, so I think it's an excellent opportunity for us to just reboot and use uh, Paul's letter uh, to a fellow Jesus followers. Uh, in his letters, Paul outlines for us some of the most practical uh, transformations that occur in the life of a disciple, uh, ranging from the reconciliation of broken relationships to finding peace in a troubled world that's just bent on hoarding possessions. So I think it's important for us to remember that Christ is making all things new, um, even in us, even in our church, and even in our world, Christ is always making things new. So today's topic is reimagining regret. And we will use Paul's letter to Timothy. And uh, Paul called Timothy in chapter 1, verse 2, Timothy, my true son in faith. We'll be using uh, Paul's letter as a guide. So I like to tell stories. We, we prayed for God, the storyteller. I like to tell stories. So uh, I'm going to tell you a few stories, and maybe we'll we'll uh, we'll get to where we need to be. Uh, so when Susie and I went to Susie, my wife and I went to seminary together, uh, and we also took our kids. So I was second career. For those of you that don't know my story, I was second career. Went to uh, my wife and I went to seminary, and it's a three-year program. And we took our kids with us. Uh, they were preschool and second grade at the time. Uh, Raleigh and Carter Lee. Uh, went with us. So the four of us basically went to seminary together. We lived on campus and, and went to school there for three years. Um, one of the things that seminary students could do to make extra money, and money was something that was in very short supply when, when you're in seminary, but the seminary organized um, uh, students to go preach in small churches around Atlanta. Uh, churches maybe that were too small to afford to have uh, their own pastor, and it was great, great for the students because we got to go out and kind of practice our craft in public. Because up until that point, we had only preached in our preaching classes, uh, which were held in the chapel uh, of of the seminary. And if you've ever watched Monday Night Football or anything where they have the little clicker where they reverse back and forth in a in the field of play, well, that's what they use on seminary students when you're preaching. So the day after you preach to your classmates who were very supportive and helpful in, in their criticism as well, um, you, you sit in the, in the office of your professor and they go through your sermon, reverse forward, reverse forward, and, and point out all the things you do wrong, and like talking with your hands, which is something I've been doing for like 60 years, so that's... Uh, I, you know, that's just who I am. I can't help it. But anyway, um, to get out in these small churches was very helpful uh, to, to get out and do that. And it was also great, especially for me, because I brought my wife and my two kids. And if you've ever been in any small church, uh, really having uh, four people come in that, you, that are strangers, especially with small children, was something they were always uh, really excited about. Now, this church I went to, uh, probably more than any other, was located in uh, southeast Atlanta. At one time, it had probably been a small town, uh, and then it became a suburb, and then it just kind of got gobbled up by uh, the sprawl of Atlanta. Uh, the church had suffered in that process, quite honestly. Um, it, uh, it had suffer suffered as the, the world had changed around it, and it had not. Uh, it had dwindled down to just a handful of really faithful members uh, most of the current members you could really connect to one particular family, 
uh, in the church and in the community, a very powerful and, and wealthy family, but also a very benevolent family that had done uh, much for the church and the community. Uh, the building was in need of repair. In fact, I, I still remember standing in the pulpit and being able to look out and seeing sunlight coming through where the wall and the, and the ceiling uh, came together. Um, so, but I remember the first time before I went there, I, I met with the, uh, um, the person that organized all their worship services, and, and he had emailed me the, the order of service. And, the, and, and that's why we talked about it earlier. I wanted to get in your mind those, that importance of that order of service. And that trained eye of the seminarian, you know, the first thing I noticed is uh, um, there wasn't a prayer confession. So I asked him about that, and so he told me, uh, rather matter-of-factly, said the patriarch of this uh, supporting family um, didn't really like uh, corporate confession and didn't like m- making a public profession of maybe some imaginary sin because really in their mind, they had really done nothing wrong. And they didn't really understand why it couldn't be something positive and uplifting for the community. They lived lives of no regret. So they felt that they didn't need to confess other people's sins. Now all this was told to me with the great conviction of someone who knew they were standing on rather dubious theological ground, but they said it anyway. And that was the end of our conversation about it. So for every time I was there and I preached, uh, we never confessed our sins corporately, uh, but I sure did silently in my heart say lots and lots of confessions. That's why it's important. It's important to confess our sins to be before God, holy and fully. So to reimagine regret, I think we first have to admit that we have regrets and what it means to regret. To feel regret is an internal feeling. For me, it's that thing in the pit of your stomach, that feeling of sadness or disappointment over something that's happened or has been done, especially maybe a missed opportunity. I think the thing to me about regret is it's a self-inflicted wound You know, many times somebody can do something to you and it hurts and it's painful, but somehow you can kind of build a little wall around your heart and say, well, you know, really they're the ones at fault. But when we do something wrong, when when we say something or act in a certain way that was inappropriate or unhealthy, then the regret falls on us. So how can we fill that hole in our hearts that regret can build and gnaw at us. I think first we have to face it, realize it's there, and confess it. I mean, the Bible tells us that God can use even broken vessels to bring glory to God's kingdom. So how can we heal our regretful hearts and maybe even help others? Now, John Wesley, an English pastor and theologian who helped found the Methodist Church, Uh, And he did that mostly through small groups, having small group of people meet in Bible studies. And he started almost every Bible study with this one question. How is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? Now that's a tough question to ask. It's a tough question to ask yourself. 
it's a really tough question to ask somebody that you love and care about and maybe even a stranger. And do we even really know the answer sometimes? Now, this world we live in today, this social media kind of driven culture that we live in, it offers the outside world a show, a polished and airbrushed filtered view of the world, the perfect relationship, the perfect family, the most excellent vacation that's ever been had, all of it staged, all of it displayed with the eye of perfection. And if you've ever held someone's iPhone to take a picture of them in some place, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have to take that picture about 10 times. It's just not perfect. We live in a world that no longer allows blemishes or imperfections. Even our political and government leaders polish their speeches with focus groups and word salads that don't really mean anything. And if a leader actually makes an actual mistake, there's very little evidence of regret. Usually there's just cover-up and denial. Look the other way. What about isms? The North American culture that we now live in has no regrets. To admit a regret is a sign of weakness. So I ask you today, how is it with your soul? Do you have any regrets? I do. I have regrets. Bitter regrets. My soul hurts at times. But I've learned to ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness from God. Forgiveness from people. Forgiveness from situations where my regret resides. When you do that, it's freeing. It's healthy and it's renewing. Now I learned this as we learn most things in life from a good friend, a mentor. Uh, When I arrived in Lynchburg, Virginia, again, if you don't know me well, I came to Mount Pleasant four years ago from Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, from my church there. Um, That was my first call as a pastor head of staff, and it was challenging. Uh, Anytime you take on a new responsibility, it's a challenge. I'd never been to Lynchburg, never even driven through it. You know, it's kind of strange to drop into, kind of strange thing about ministers, we kind of drop into these towns, we don't know anything about them, we've probably never been there, and we've got to lead a congregation. Well, that was definitely my uh, experience in Lynchburg. I'd never been there. But I felt called to that church and felt called to be part of it. Not long after my arrival, I got a visit in my office from an older gentleman in the congregation, and he offered to help me. I was trying to do some things to revitalize the church and was meeting some resistance. He could see that, and, uh, and, and he came to offer his help. He was a lifelong Presbyterian. He was a retired engineer. He had that kind of analytical mind of an engineer. Uh, In his life, he and his family had moved around the country many times and had finally settled uh, in in Lynchburg. Uh, He had been an elder and clerk of session in several Presbyterian churches. And he and I became instantly and very close friends. 
Uh, for me, he was that confidant that I needed, that sounding board of a, a wiser mentor that had seen maybe some of these things happen before and could give me good counsel. Uh, I began to trust him immensely. So he eventually joined the session as the clerk of session, and we, we made a great team. We got a lot of stuff done. Then one day I got a call that I needed to rush to the hospital, to the ER. My friend had fallen off a ladder and, and hit the back of his head on a cement floor. Um, they didn't think he was going to make it. And I got to the ER and, and I was able to, to be with him and his wife and pray with him and be with him. And, and, and he, pulled, he pulled through. He, he did great. And uh, it was a long recovery process. Um, so he had to step away from his church leadership and uh, concentrate on his health, which he did. And our friendship stayed strong and our, our visits continued. We just talked about other things uh, besides, besides church. Well, shortly after I'd accepted my call to come to Mount Pleasant, I'd maybe only been here a couple of months, I think, and his son called me and said that he had taken a turn in his health and, and they didn't think he was going to make it. And he'd asked his son to call me because he wanted to talk to me and not on the phone, in person. Um, so I made arrangements to go to Lynchburg and see my friend and, and prepare myself for, you know, probably my last visit with uh, my friend and mentor. And I got there, and I, I got to his bedside, and, and, and I could tell he was wrestling with something. He wasn't comfortable. I mean, I could tell he was, he was wrestling with something on the inside. And, but due to the brain injury, he sometimes had difficulty kind of articulating his thoughts, you know, what he, what he was thinking about. But after a while, after a few kind of false starts and, and kind of getting around things, I finally figured out and got to it, he had regret. He had regret. And it, it took me a while to kind of pull myself together because here's someone I had great admiration for. Someone I saw as a pillar of the faith, a disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, I knew his wife, I knew his kids, I knew some of his grandkids. They were all faithful, good people. They were involved in their communities where they lived. I mean, he was a major part of their lives and deeply invested in their lives. And he was a faithful disciple of our church and our community. What on earth would he have regrets over? Yet he had them. And so we, we prayed about it. We talked about it. We talked about God's work in our lives and even in the depths of our own despair, how God is there with us, walking us through these things. And I could tell he was relieved. And so after a while, I, I said my goodbyes and told him I would see him again one day. And I came back to Mount Pleasant. And a few weeks after I got back, my friend entered the church triumphant. I have no doubt he heard these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. And all those regrets, they're gone. They melted away into eternity. Keeping our mistakes and our prickly edges to ourselves breeds regret which has less to do with what we have done and more to do with how we think about ourselves and how we think about our relationships with others. Regret keeps us trapped in the past, preventing us from moving into the future. 
In our scripture reading today, Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The Greek word we translate there, foremost, is protos, and it means first, but not just first, like the one, but first in a succession of things, first in the order of things, or first in the order of people. So Paul is admitting of all the sinners in the whole world, and trust me, Paul knows quite a few sinners, he is publicly declaring in his church that he is at the front of the line. And what about those other disciples, those 12 disciples that followed Jesus when he was on earth? A church member recently told me that they had a Bible study teacher that called them the duh disciples because they were so dumb. The duh disciples are largely responsible for this New Testament that we have that tells us about who Jesus is. Now, if you or I were writing a story about how we knew the greatest human that had ever lived on this earth, Jesus Christ, and he was one of our closest friends, don't you think you would maybe paint a little better picture of yourself than they did? It's all there. Denying, thieving, blaspheming, running away, all of them. Yet they don't gloss it over. It's all there for the world to see for generations. For the world to see God's mercy displayed even in the disciples. So Paul, like the disciples before him, doesn't edit his failures when he tells the story of his faith. He understands that his past is more than just a series of missteps and mistakes. His journey, all of it, The good and the bad reflects the depth of God's mercy. Paul doesn't revisit his history because he feels guilty about it. He tells his story and he bears his soul so that no one who hears him will be tempted to put him on a pedestal. The ugliness of his past reveals the glory of the grace of God. So Paul says, but for that very reason I received mercy so that in me, as the foremost public sinner number one, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me the example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. So I ask you again, how is it with your soul? How might God be working in your regrets? To build up your faith, to expect to express God's mercy to yourself and to your friends and to those you're around. That's how you reimagine regret. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.